0: Hello everyone, welcome down to Down Snow's History. Have I, have I got a treat for you this time? I've got Stephen Taylor on the podcast. He's a, a writer that I've, I've long enjoyed reading. He's written wonderful books about naval history in the long 18th century. And you know, you know me, I'm a bit of a sucker for that. His latest book is on the common sailors, the experience of the sailors, the men before the mast. Not the officers, but the men at the sharp end. And rather than being the sort of illiterate, uh, brutally punished, press-ganged, uh, anonymous a group of people that we might, the myth tells us they are. Actually, Stephen has found a rich set of historical sources to tell the story of these sailors. We had a great chat. If you want to watch uh, Maritime History, please head over to historyhit.tv. It's a new digital history channel. It is going crazy at the moment, which is really exciting. We've got lots of commissions uh, underway, lots of exciting things, lots of exciting bits of history that we are, are looking into. Um, you can get a History Hit TV. You can watch the whole thing if you want for just £1, euro or dollar. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, just enter it in, you get the first month for free, and then they get the second month for just one pound a or dollar. It's pretty sweet. We've got a new documentary about Stonehenge up there, including the latest research, exciting stuff, you've got to check that out. And we've also got a new young historian, Luke Pepero, he's talking about Africa and how it's largely been written out of British history. So please, please go and check all those new films out. Uh, it's really really exciting And if you want to get a face covering if you want to cover your face because you should uh, around the world stop the spread of covid please go to history.com slash shop to buy your historical face covering you're going to absolutely love them my favorite so far is the jawline of abraham lincoln uh go and check that out in the meantime everyone here is stephen taylor enjoy stephen thanks you very much for coming on the podcast my pleasure indeed well, it's my pleasure because I love talking about this period and so what, what is this period. What is the myth, do you think, that you're grappling with about the men who sailed in these ships?
1: I think it's the, uh, the widespread perception that has been bequeathed to us by oh a variety of histories that this was a terrible, frightening and uh, a, a, su- a suffering way of life, that these were men who were invariably press-ganged, Uh, You know, images of the press gang are absolutely typical of the period, usually cudgel-wielding brutes, tearing some forlorn figure from his family. And it's true, of course, that press gangs were uh, an ugly fact of naval policy in wartime. But many men actually went to sea voluntarily. And if we examine the history, the records and the voices of these men themselves, they're not the put-upon sufferers. Uh, that we associate with the common seamen. They are in fact a proud and um, uh, it must be said triumphant uh, tribe Uh, because essentially we come back to the point, I think repeatedly, and it's not just a matter of naval history, um, although that's absolutely key to British uh, turning Britain into the superpower of the age as it were, but there's so many other aspects of the seafaring uh, 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 economy that transformed Britain. There was trade, there was discovery, there was navigation uh, and charting. And I think sometimes these are overlooked in the uh, sort of general focus on war. So we've got Cook's voyages to the South Seas. We've got the East India Company's business in India and China. And ultimately, of course, the voyages of uh, the Enlightenment with Darwin and the Beagle. And all are absolutely dependent upon this individual, the common seaman, Jack Tarr, as we generally know him.
0: Is it possible to make a judgment about what proportion would have volunteered or, or you know, been, been willing to go to sea? and what, Because there was some press ganging, wasn't there? Oh, absolutely. And never
1: more so than at times of war, because you've got these huge paradoxes between, at the time, the times of peace, when really uh, there is no need for the navy to be having uh, a large uh, a crew at hand, uh, which have, accounts for the fact that there wasn't a standing force uh, of of naval crewmen. Uh, and once a conflict broke out, those men who had been serving and earning quite handsome wages, generally on sometimes on the coastal trade, but more specifically on the uh, uh, East India Company's business in India, they would suddenly, be at, at times of, of war, be dragged off ships uh, and, uh, and forced, of course, to serve in the Navy for lower wages uh, and all the things that went with naval service. But I think one really does need to retain the sense of a kind of independence that these men had, Uh, Essentially, you know, they they may be press ganged, but if they didn't like a ship and if they didn't like where they found themselves, they could desert. And they very often did. And of course, that was a dangerous business. But at the same time, uh, they very often got away with it because if there was a need for seamen as so often there was, they would find themselves in another port and they would find themselves another, another captain. And the captain, because of the need in finding these kind of ch- these these skilled men, because their skills were great, and we can discuss that at some length, uh, were um, always in demand. Um, I think as well, you know, we 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 if we go back to the sense of you know the um, uh, serving in the navy, it was a tough business. There was flogging, and flogging was obviously <laughs> a process of suffering in itself. But this is after all a time when um, sailing was booming, Uh, agriculture was in decline, and a man who learnt the ropes as a sailor, he acquired a skill that was almost always uh, in demand. Uh, And at the same time, he had a place to sleep. Uh, He was provided with food, Uh, and one might add, he was also provided with large quantities of drink. Uh, So, (coughs) you know, he knows that this is a tough life, but he finds himself in a, in a group with whom he forms a bond. There is a brotherhood uh, and one, uh, we might say, this is a somewhat romantic notion. But actually, I think the record speaks, if you look at not only the success of so many of the aspects of British seafaring, which was really covering the world at that time, you only have to look at the records uh, of British ships in battle against whoever it was so whatever form of seafaring we're talking about these men had an absolute conviction
0: that what they were doing they
1: were doing well
0: and also you, you don't you don't want to um, you don't want lots of landlubbers you don't want to just grab any old person off the street, do you? you? You need people that know how to sail. I mean, these are highly sophisticated pieces of machinery that you're sailing around the world. Absolutely.
1: So there's a tier. You know, we, we get the, <clears throat> the chap who comes on as a landsman. Now He is the most junior seaman. But in the process of, as it were, pulling on ropes <clears throat> and helping his crewmen, he learns a series of skills which culminate in his rise from the lowest tier to an ordinary seaman and ultimately... To the able seaman, a man who is, in fact, esteemed by his, his fellows, uh, is valued uh, by his officers simply because he is absolutely key when it comes to that extraordinary business of going up into the tops. I think this is possibly an experience of which you have some experience yourself, Dan. Um, and actually finding yourself uh, up there uh, at the you know, 100 feet above a swaying deck Uh, your feet on ropes and swaying uh, between uh, uh, 60 degrees on either side, but all the time looking upon uh, onto this extraordinary, magnificent scene that is this element, which is your world, and which in a way works into the kind of poetic side that one sees emerging through Seaman's stories, uh, through their writings, I think we have a, another misconception that these men, because they were common folk of their time, could not possibly be uh, literate. In fact, uh, we have got a number of records, 12 absolutely key uh, memoirs, journals published, unpublished, and another or oh, 10, 15 lesser uh, journals, but still also filling in some of those gaps. And here is the seaman as a storyteller who senses there is something very special about his world. He doesn't really feel very much in common with the other commoners uh, of his home soil. So he comes back from exotic parts of the world. Not invariably exotic, but he might have been to the South Seas, he might have been to China, he might have been to India. And he comes back with these extraordinary stories his experiences, encounters, strange creatures. Um, there are a range of uh, stories which you can, which which come back in this process and which are spelt out in these memoirs. Some of them quite romantic, romantic encounters with women in the South Seas, for example, island women renowned for their beauty. There's another. There's a particularly interesting example. Um, of a seaman who was serving on the uh, on the sh- ships which were taking convicts to New South Wales, and um, a very romantic story attaches to that, which we can discuss if you like.
0: Yeah, well, tell us some of these stories because I think that, what what are the what are these sources? Are are they were they written for the consumer? Uh, the consumer markets, uh, published sources, are, are, they, are they private diaries? Where, where are you finding these accounts? Well, I think they're, um, they're, they're two particularly interesting characters. Uh,
1: there was a period after the, uh, if you like, sort of the Great Age of Sale, which culminates, of course, in the uh, revolutionary Napoleonic Wars, when there was a recognition that the seamen had played a key part in the in these great victories, uh, the things that are celebrated in the Maritime Museum at Greenwich, you know, all these wonderful canvases of epauletted officers, gold epauletted officers, and their magnificent ships sailing along under uh, under sail in storms or in battle. But there was also a story to be told by those. Who had obviously served on these ships, so there was a small-scale uh, publishing industry. We can take, for example, one of those individuals, a man named John Nicholl, uh, a most uh, a very interesting uh, Scot, uh, a thoughtful romantic, you might say, and he was actually taken uh, to to sea by reading Robinson Crusoe. Slightly odd, one might think, you know. I go to sea in order to become a castaway. Uh, but uh, there was that open door to adventure that these stories opened up to uh, to, to men like Nicol. And he then spent decades on naval uh, and merchant ships. He was the guns at the Battle of the Nile. Uh, he was also just a natural adventurer who wanted to visit exotic parts of the world and who was... Um, exhilarated by the experiences he had of visiting China and the South Seas. Uh, He was also, and this is quite an interesting aspect of what I would see as Jack's character, um, he was quite unworldly. He was uh, on the Lady Juliana, one of the ships transporting uh, convicts to New South Wales, and fell completely in love with one of the female prisoners. Now, there was quite a lot of, actually what might we say, sexual experiences between the convicts and the seamen on these ships. So far as John Nicol was concerned, this was the love of his life. Uh, She, in fact, Sarah, bore him a child by the time that they landed in New South Wales. And although he might have been uh, moved by this uh, experience to desert, he was a very loyal man on his ship, so he sailed on, but always came back with the intention of finding Sarah. And he did actually spend years on a quest, sailing to India, sailing back to New South Wales, only to discover uh, that she had, as one might say, uh, as many seamen had a, an instinct for survival, she needed an instinct for survival, and she found another man who could help to support her. So <clears throat> we've got men like Nicol on the one hand, as they say, romantic, somewhat unworldly, and yet on the other hand, Another journal kept by another seaman reflects a different aspect of, of Jack's character. So whereas Nicol was a Scot, uh, a man named Jacob Nagel was an American who actually fought for um, his country's independence before, uh, before he decided that the royal Navy was a perfectly good place for him to serve. And he then spent decades uh, sailing with British ships of all kinds, and you know he's a he's a complete rumbustious character. You know he's quick with his fists. He loves a night out when he's full pay with his uh, with his shipmates when they come to shore. His relationship with women are generally uh, as. Is the case with so many uh, seamen, uh, a commercial kind. But he's generous, thoughtful. He understands that they've got their difficulties too, the lasses who are working in Portsmouth, the Portsmouth poles. He always treats them with generosity. And if we study these, let's just take these two journals. You read these stories, and you might be inclined to say, "This is a, you know, this is a good story," but is it possibly true? Because they do Tell extraordinary tales, cast away, being cast away, shipwreck, and all the other things. And yet, if you go to the maritime records at Kew, the National Archives, and you study the ship's logs, the ship's musters, which record all the crew who were ship on a ship at a particular time, and you match those with these individuals who've left their memoirs subsequently be- to be published you find that they match. There you will find on that ships muster, Jacob Nagel, or in the case of John, John Nickel, and all the others whose uh, memoirs, journals published and not uh, who I drew upon for the sources. If I would just give one particular interesting case in point um, just again, to emphasize the variety of individuals who came on to these onto ships, after uh, an old hand named uh, James Choice died at a lodging house in Brighton in 1836, it was found that he had kept a journal. And although it's written in a rather wooden style, it does tell another astonishing story, how he was taken off a, a prisoner off a whaler in Peru while he was little more than a boy how he survived at the very edge in South America, made various uh, escape attempts, uh, had a brief career as a pirate, uh, and then another spell in captivity, this time in France. And at that point, he writes in his journal, I disowned the name of an Englishman, as it had always been so unlucky to me, and joined the enemy reasoning who would not fight for so good a master as Bonaparte. Well, he then writes of how, and this is why he's still serving with the French, on sighting a British squadron at anchor uh, off Brittany, he stole a boat and rowed out to a ship called the Theseus. Now, at this point, you say, this is pushing it a bit too far. This must be a fantasy. But if you go to the log of the Theseus, it, there it is entered and it confirms that a man named James Choice had been welcomed up the side as he explained, after escaping from a French prisoner. So again, one finds that these sort of hair-raising extraordinary stories actually fit so often into the records, which spread the wider picture, if you like.
2: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.
0: Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American History hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history, and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids – Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. Um, sea, bat- sea battles were rare, but they sounded extremely dangerous. T- terrifying to be on board a wooden ship as as uh, giant cannonballs and, uh, are smashing through... Great planks of oak and spreading, sending splinters, somersaulting through the air.
1: Yes, I think uh, clearly the, um, the wounds that were um, inflicted in these kind of circumstances, very often not by cannonballs themselves directly, but by the splinters that they generated as they exploded coming through a side or hitting some part of the ship. The wounds that were uh, taken in these, kind of, uh, uh, in these circumstances were, as you say, very horrifying. There's a, a lot of kind of, um, this, the, the telling of these stories quite often has a head off variety. You know, you'll hear about so-and-so and he was standing beside me and his head disappeared. I think that becomes a bit of a, if you like a disguise for the um, really rather terrible wounds that could be inflicted on these occasions. Mm-hmm and there was at the same time uh, in the intensity of this battle a confusion because very often the men were very unable to see much more than the powder at hand the ball that had to be loaded and the cannon that they were serving upon so it was an intense um but relatively brief affair as it was seen by, for example, those military men, army officers who had some experience of seeing naval battles, actually thought, well, uh, I I wouldn't mind having a part in that because it's bloody, but it's brief. And that was, I think, the sense that, that the intensity that British sailors brought to that activity, the speed, that they were with which they were able to load a cannon and fire it, and the accuracy which they did uh, was so crucial to the success. Not so much of, well, tactics were clearly important, but it was actually the effectiveness of, of the British ship in battle that was so key. And there is quite an interesting little extract, uh, which I might read, if you like, because it comes from... Um, a French officer who was at Trafalgar and um, he, uh, he surrendered uh, and found of course that on surrendering his ship a British crew came on board uh, to take control and as we know uh, Trafalgar the battle itself was followed by the most furious storm uh, and As he described it, they, the British seamen, immediately set to work to shorten sail and reef in top sails with as much regularity and order as if their ships had not been fighting a dreadful battle. We were all amazement, wondering what the English sailor could be made of. All our seamen were drunk or disabled
0: yeah and i'm rem- reminded after the battle of the saints at the uh, end of the american war of independence when the french commander just says the 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 british are a hundred years ahead of us um uh, the uh, it's it's remarkable you wouldn't want to be fighting against the royal navy in this period what about what about meritocracy uh, uh, captain cook obviously joins as a an ordinary seaman and rises up through the ranks i think admiral sanders does at quebec he he was a um former Uh, common seamen. Um, Are you more likely to be promoted and grow wealthy if you're from a humble background than their equivalents in the army? I think
1: there was something uh, about the nature of naval life, if we're talking about, and we are clearly talking about the Navy, about the nature of life on board, where, of course, we're talking about a very limited space, which created a degree of intimacy uh, between the officer class and the, the lower deck. I mean, you couldn't, on a space which was no more than 50 metres and at about 12, 13 metres, sustain a huge social difference, as you did, for example, on the landed class between the, uh, the landowner and his, uh, and his commoner labourers. And because perhaps of that sense that um, there was a community here working together there was a greater a degree of rising from the lower deck. Not uh, very widespread, but you mention those examples. There's another very interesting example uh, of, indeed, one of the most uh, famous of our commanders, Edward Pellew, who was, uh, you know, he was a, he was a Cornish boy, grew up by the seaside, just immediately... Because this was his world, drawn to the sea, and uh, probably because of his uh, his initiative, his strength, his skill, uh, and his robustness of character, attracted attention in a way that would have did bring him the kind of sponsorship that rose him into an officer level at a fairly early stage in his life, Uh, I think he was promoted to lieutenant when he was about 21, because he didn't have the kind of sponsorship, the kind of, as it was said, influence that was generally required to go all the way to the top. He was then set aside, and it took a series of extraordinary fortunate events for him, and the uh, eagerness and the talent with which he sees those opportunities to become first of all uh, probably in my view uh, the most successful frigate captain of that of that era and ultimately because of that and because he did actually have huge abilities Despite the fact that he would generally spoil his spoil his his influence at uh, at Westminster sooner or later, and quite regularly did, he still rose to the level of admiral.
0: And then, lastly, did they tend? Were they pensioned off? How did how did the story end for most of them? Did they just they just die of old age and and hardship on board, or or did they have successful afterlives? Well, I suppose
1: there are many uh, answers to that uh, a particular aspect of their story uh, as there are, are individuals themselves. I mean, yes, a, a great number uh, ended up in severe uh, difficulties. Take, for example, uh, John Nickel, who I mentioned earlier, the romantic seaman of, uh, of, of that particular period, the great adventurous wanderer. He was actually found uh, scrabbling on the streets of Edinburgh looking for coals to keep himself warm by, uh, in effect, a, a local journalist who recognised that here was a man who had an extraordinary story to tell. Uh, it didn't greatly help Nickel, but it removed him from that degree of poverty. Uh, Jacob Nagel also ended up in, um, in severe shortage at the same time. We must remember that one of the great institutions which was founded by the Navy at the time was the pensioners' refuge at Greenwich. It was always said uh, that those who were fortunate enough to uh, end up uh, in, uh, in that old, wonderful, what was called the Naval Hospital, uh, were safe moored in Greenwich Pier. And you had to have a certain series of, uh, you had to have a period of service that would entitle you uh, to a place there. Uh, it wasn't always easy to obtain that. You had to report to a series of boards uh, and present your documents. And if you didn't have that documents, those documents and you weren't able to prove your, as it were, your service, uh, you would be discarded. But those who did find themselves in Greenwich could not uh, have been more, as it were, favored. And they became a a kind of a a visitor center for people who became interested in the maritime past. They would go down to uh, Greenwich and they would speak to these old pensioners, ask them to spin their stories. One of those who they might've found down there, very interesting character as well, uh, is a man named Tom Allen. Now, actually, if you go to Greenwich, uh, there at the Maritime Museum, among all the wonderful canvases all around, tucked away uh, on a side wall, is a painting, a portrait of Tom Allen. And Tom is owes his place in history to a particular association. He actually started out as a ploughman in Norfolk uh, until he was spotted by uh, a local family uh, and uh, The family's name was Nelson. Uh, The individual who spotted him was named Horatio. And Horatio Nelson at that time was a relatively junior captain, but he needed crew. And so often these local resources provided a kind of, if you like, supply chain. It was a very effective supply chain because these were men who shared a community. They shared a background. And so Tom Allen, having been taken on board, by Nelson, then just a captain, became his servant and stayed with him for years, Uh, would accompany him uh, into the great cabin for dinners, actually had a a degree of informal relationship with Nelson that somewhat astonished visitors because he would be telling Nelson that he'd had enough wine and it was time for him to retire. Uh, he, He actually overstepped the mark in the end, but He, uh, because of his long service, was one of those who did end up at Greenwich and who would be spinning his yarns, his years uh, of service under the great man to anybody interested to come down uh, to Greenwich and ask those kind of questions.
0: He would certainly have been allowed on the podcast, I'll tell you that much. Thank you so much. Your your book is called? Sons of the Waves, The Common Man at Sea in the
1: Heroic Age of Sail.
0: Brilliant. Well, good luck with it. Thank you very
1: much. Thank you, Dan. Good luck to you.
0: I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated.
2: One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. He tells us What is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well.
1: I have faith
2: in you.